Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that we gather here today on the ancestral lands of the Spokane people and that our watershed incorporates the ancestral lands of the Coeur d'Alene tribe as well. These indigenous cultures have lived and continue to live, work, and play along the banks of our watersheds for millennium and were the very first water keepers. Welcome. Uh, my name is Jerry White Jr. I am your Spokane River Keeper and uh, very excited to be here uh, for our uh, second Spoken River podcast today. Yeah, and I'm, um, I'm Carrie Herman and I am very excited for our second podcast too. On today's episode, uh, we're very, very excited to have uh, Thomas Lindsay with us. Uh, who is with the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, or CEDAR. Thomas serves as the Senior Legal Counsel for the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. Uh, and in, It's an organization that's committed to globally advancing environmental rights. He is the co-founder of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund and is widely recognized as the founder of the Contemporary Community Rights and rights of nature movements. Now, these movements have resulted in the adoption of several hundred municipal laws across the United States and uh, are growing in stature and importance in terms of uh, the environmental movement. Thomas sits on the board of advisors of the New Earth Foundation, and we're really excited uh, to have you here today, Thomas, to, to talk with us a little bit about rights of nature specifically. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, I was trying to remember the last time that I did an in-person interview, but I think it was March of last year in Minneapolis on a radio station. So it's been a while. Minneapolis. Minneapolis, I love Minneapolis. Awesome. Yeah, we're really excited to um, enter into this conversation. I think the rights of nature is like super interesting. Uh, Our board has recently been kind of doing an informal book club reading um, about rights of nature, which has been really interesting. Um, I'm curious to, uh, I guess, Thomas, know a little bit more about you and your work on this movement and uh, why you, I guess, like the Spokane River and, and how you spend time around it. Sure. So uh, way back in uh, 1995, which seems like ancient history at this point, especially from the pandemic point of view, but uh, 1995, we started a nonprofit law firm to offer free legal services to community-based environmental organizations, mostly in Pennsylvania. And for about 10 years, I practiced what I refer to lovingly now as conventional or traditional environmental law. So uh, enforcing the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act and different national and state environmental laws and permit appeals and zoning hearing board appeals, all that good stuff that environmental lawyers do. And uh, after a while, I I came to the conclusion after doing that for about 10 years that the environmental laws in the United States were really not about protecting the environment, which Mm. always sounds strange to say. Yeah. Uh, but they're just not up to snuff for what we need over the, you know, coming years or even the last 40 years. And so, that work eventually, you know, culminated in the rights of nature work that we do and community rights stuff, which we'll talk about today. Uh, but uh, the Spokane River was actually what brought me to Spokane in the first place. Really? Moving from the East Coast to the West Coast to work on a project 
for a ballot initiative in uh, in Spokane, city of Spokane, that would have recognized legal rights for the Spokane River and the uh, and the aquifer here, uh, in addition to other things within the city. So it was actually that effort that brought me to Spokane in the first place, and we've been here ever since, on and off, back and forth to the East Coast. But uh, that's that's what brought us here. Awesome. And when you say us. Um, what does that mean? Well, the, the us is the, is the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. So okay. uh, we're an organization of lawyers uh, and activists in the United States, as well as uh, we have international staff in Tanzania, uh, Ecuador, Nepal, Australia, different places where folks are working on this rights of nature concept. Awesome. Do you ever get to travel to any of those places? Uh, <laughs> my younger self, yes. But I think it was the last flight back from Kathmandu that did me in on international travel. It's like 20, 22 hours on a plane. I don't think uh, as I get older that I'm cut out for that anymore. So I'll leave it to the younger folks. Fair enough. Well, you know, uh, the, the Spokane Riverkeeper is actually a member of the Waterkeeper Alliance, which is a global organization of waterkeeping, you know, orgs uh, all over the earth, from China to South America to to uh, to Europe and the United States, of course. And and I think we're really watching this excitement over the rise of rights of nature, and in in, in many ways, that's a you know, there's real global associations with this, and I'd be curious to hear you talk about some of these places where this is beginning to happen. Sure, and I think, you know, whereas 15 years ago, talking about the rights of nature really got you an invitation to a padded room in terms of just being radical and a little confrontational and some would say a little crazy, uh, that lately there's been so many developments in this field, it's hard to even keep track of them. So week to week, it's different stuff happening in different places. But, you know, for folks new to the rights of nature concept, it's it's essentially about recognizing civil rights for ecosystems. So human, human civil rights type protections for ecosystems. So forests and streams and rivers actually having civil rights uh, in a way under the law. And the reasoning for that is that under the U.S. system of law, under a Western system of law, the highest level of protection that humans receive is civil rights. So we're used to constitutional rights in the, in the Bill of Rights for the U.S. Constitution and the you know, Declaration of Rights, Bill of Rights, and the Washington State Constitution. The highest level of recognition of protection of certain things under the Western system of law is really rights, rights-based. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, in the environmental field, it, it's never really moved to that place. Uh, it's, it's been stuck in this regulatory permit appeal. What can we um, authorize through permitting and regulatory structures? And basically, you know, even when we regulate something perfectly, we're just regulating its rate of destruction or rate of decline. That's uh, pretty much how in Western law it's situated. And, you know, to make a long story short on the explanation piece that, uh, you know, we're to a point where the kind of structures we have for environmental protection are not commensurate to the challenges that we face. Uh, and whether that's because, you know, 90% of the original forests in the United States have been logged, uh, 40% of waterways in the U.S. still don't meet minimum clean water standards that were adopted way back in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, climate change, where the most uh, pessimistic projections of climate scientists are now proving to be downright optimistic. 
there was just a study out that said 3% of the original habitat in the U.S. is all that exists. Uh, half of all plant and animal species have been driven to extinction uh, over the course of uh, the last 100 years. And so the question is, what, what's the new future of environmental law? What's the new you know, what's the new landscape look like? And I think this rights of nature concept is firmly there. And I'm convinced at this point that it is the next emerging field of environmental law uh, that's going to be the default, both internationally and in the U.S. But, but getting back to your specific question, Jerry, about, you know, developments, basically followed three phases, which was in the United States, at least, and globally, in fact, in 2006, the first rights of nature law was passed in the United States in a little community just northwest of Philadelphia. And I drafted that with the uh, uh, borough council representatives, elected members. So this is how far back our work goes, is 2006. But that law was passed in this small community to protect the waterways from a project to bring PCB-laden dredge in from the Delaware River to dump it in old mine pits in this place called Tamaqua Borough, which is an old mining community. And the people of Tamaqua didn't want the PCB dredge being brought in. And so very they have, fair. very fair. <laughs> they didn't want their community being used as a toilet, <laughs> basically, right. and uh, decided to do something about it, which was to draft a law, local ordinance, a local community law that banned the project, but also at the same time started asking some really tough questions about what about when we define community as more than just the homo sapiens that live here, but also the waterways and the ecosystems and Panther Creek runs through the community, the little Schuylkill river, which is drinking water supply for the city of Philadelphia. All to say, eventually they ended up with uh, us drafting an ordinance for them that created or recognized civil rights for the waterways in the community, right to exist and flourish and regenerate, evolve uh, these kind of constitutionally based rights. And that was really the first phase was these communities trying to grapple with what this meant and trying to put it on paper. And then the second phase was really the exponential growth phase, which was uh, Ecuador was putting together its new Ecuadorian constitution back in 2008. And we were called down to assist with the drafting of the new Ecuadorian constitution because the Ecuadorian delegates had heard about what happened in Tamaqua and these other places. So we went down, helped them draft language, uh, worked with them, various committees, and eventually the Ecuadorians overwhelmingly ratified this new national constitution, which had rights of nature in it. Uh, so rights of ecosystems, legally enforceable rights of ecosystems. And then kind of the, the third phase happened, which was the Ecuadorian stuff got a lot of play, it got a lot of attention. And then it started boomeranging into different places like the city of Pittsburgh, uh, where we drafted a law for the city of Pittsburgh to protect the three rivers as having rights, so legally enforceable rights. And then I think unbeknownst or unpredictable, you know, a lot of this stuff is just unpredictable, is that courts internationally started picking up these laws. So courts in India and Colombia, uh, Bangladesh uh, started uh, without any laws whatsoever, judges just declaring that certain ecosystems like the Amazon and the Amazon River Basin and all rivers in Bangladesh uh, and the Ganges uh, had certain civil rights of their own. So picking up this concept of legally enforceable rights and then applying them in a judicial context. So I said earlier that, you know, things are changing every week. <laughs> it's pretty much the truth. Before it was one or two things, but now it's, it's happening all over the place. So it's a very exciting time to be involved in this concept, which I think, again, is the emerging field of environmental law that we're going to see over the next, you know, 20 or 30 years become the dominant default. 
So when you gain um, rights for an ecosystem or a resource or a river, who um, who enforces those rights? It's a great question. So in different places, different people or different groups. So the, the standard way it began was all residents. So if you're, let's bring it from the abstract to the practical. So if you're in Spokane and the Spokane River had rights and you passed a law dealing with that recognition of rights, that it may recognize that every resident of Spokane uh, has the right to bring an action in the shoes of the ecosystem. And as crazy as that sounds, sometimes in Western law, at least, it goes back to 1972 when the when a justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, William Douglas, uh, wrote an opinion, a dissent, uh, in a case dealing with the Sierra Club, that uh, environmental law would be in much better shape if we abandoned this concept of, of requiring standing for groups and for people to participate in regulatory hearings and lawsuits. Standing referring to? Standing referring to legal injury, so that if the Sierra Club brings a lawsuit, it has to show first before it can even be heard in court that its members have been physically injured uh, by a harm to the environment. So they own property next to where the permit has been issued, or they have some kind of financial stake uh, in the permit that's being issued, that they have to show some kind of trigger uh, to even cross the courthouse steps. And what Justice Douglas said back in 1972 in this case called Sierra Club versus Morton, and name isn't important, but the content of the dissent was, which he said that the plaintiffs should be ecosystems, not groups or not individuals, because mm-hmm. ecosystems wouldn't have a problem with standing because they're the ones being injured in the first place. Yeah. Uh, and so <laughs> let's eliminate this concept of standing and injury for individual people or for groups, and let's expand that out. And so... Your question about, you know, who can enforce, I think, comes back to that that key about what's more effective. Do we want more people representing uh, environmental interests to protect the natural environment, or do we want less? And if we want more, then it makes sense to move to this place where you could bring an action and step into the shoes of a river, which has happened. In Ecuador, the first case after the constitutional uh, revisions, kind of the new constitution was adopted, was brought by the Vilcabamba River, which was a, a, a one of the primary tributaries in Ecuador, and it was being affected by a road a construction project where the local government was dumping road debris and it was altering the course of the river. Two people that lived next on the banks of the river brought a lawsuit in the name of the Vilcabamba River. So as much as it bends our brains sometimes, the case was captioned Vilcabamba River versus the province of Loja. So it was the river as the plaintiff. And I think we have to get used to thinking uh, in those terms. So it's not it's not a it's not a radical notion anymore that it's that it's kind of mainstream. And I think it is starting to move into the mainstream. Last year, the 30th largest county in the United States in uh, Florida adopted a rights of nature law and a lawsuit was filed in the name of a couple of creeks, rivers, marsh and lakes just last week. Uh, and so all this stuff is, is moving, it's evolving. And, and I think that's a really good, good thing. Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's just fascinating. And, and, you know, I, I think about the movement of rights of nature into the next horizon of the environmental movement. And there's sort of two pieces of it for me, as I look, I look down the road and I, I'd love you to comment on whether you think this is actually happening, which is, you know, one, uh, it, it's true that working in, in the environmental field, we're always looking for new tools to help us protect 
more effectively these these rivers, forests, lakes, and uh, you know our environments. Um, but also, I, I guess uh, on the same track, it seems to me that uh, at least in the Western world, there's this growing feeling of uh, that that nature does is more than just a static object. <laughs> That nature does deserve uh, the right to be represented and and is is uh, deserves you know rights unto itself. It's it's more than just its its value is more than just its utility to people. Uh, yeah, maybe you could speak to that a little. Yeah, bit. I could. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. It's and I think in the vein of your question, it's more than just a tool in the toolbox. It's it's changing the way that we we act and change the way that we think. And Western law, you know, the difference between Western law and indigenous communities' understanding of nature, Western law sees nature as a dead thing. I mean, it's inanimate. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's to be used. And even our language reflects that. So when we talk about a parcel of land being undeveloped, well, that parcel of land could have been developed for millions of years ecologically. It's ecologically developed. But mm-hmm. just because man hasn't touched it yet, it, we, we call it un, undeveloped, which is kind of nuts. But that runs throughout our language. But contrast that with the indigenous, uh, the way that indigenous communities talk about nature as something other than property. Because under our system of law, nature is property. The more you own, the more you can destroy. I mean, that's the shorthand for it legally and Indigenous communities talk about nature much differently. They talk about the flying people and the you know the 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 flying people and the swimming people, and they talk about the Klamath River, the Yurok tribe as a relative. Uh, that it's it's not property to be owned and used. It's, it's something much different. You contrast that with Western law. You know, Sir Francis Bacon, I think, put it the best when he said, "The goal of Western civilization is to torture nature on a rack to extract her secrets," and that's kind of you know where English influenced here in the u.s we adopted that english common law system i think all that stuff came over with it uh but we also come at it from a standpoint of you know even our u.s constitutional framework is all about kind of nature is a dead thing you know exploiting it you know the understanding of the founding fathers was all about we got we have to use and exploit the natural resources to build us into a major world power and god bless them they did a good job because that's you know, the U.S. constitutional structure and the DNA of this country is about using. It's about using, it's exploiting, it's turning it into dollars and commerce and commerce and property. So it's no surprise that we are where we are. And, you know, even though our environmental protection efforts over the last 40 years have not yielded the kind of results I think that people 40 years ago thought they would yield, we also have to have to say the caveat, which is things would be a lot worse now, <laughs> except for those <laughs> frontline groups and lawyers and everybody that's tried to make the environmental laws work. But I think we're at a point where we really have to look back at that history and say, we need to do something better. We need to do something different. And I think that's, that's the age that we're in. Yeah. That reminds me when our, um, we did our last podcast, we kind of talked about um, how it's frustrating that a lot of environmental organizations have to act as the watchdogs for, um, regulations that are in place. Um, and it's nice to see this uh, on the forefront and actively being utilized so that there is more standing for anyone to be um, a protector of their environment and have those grounds. Yeah, as an environmental advocate, it's, you know, 
with Spokane Riverkeeper, it's long frustrated me that uh, that the underlying assumption is that we will continue to use our rivers to dump garbage. And, in, and now it's just a matter of negotiating how much is okay. Um, and, you know, I, I also have to say the nature of the kinds of garbage we dump into rivers and the ways that the, the nature of the harm is, is really changing. So now we have PFOS and, and we have PCBs and, and we have PBDEs or fire retardants. We have all of these chemicals that while we may not be dumping, you know, gross raw sewage in, in, in anymore, we are, you know, everything from pharmaceuticals to, uh, you know, to all these other persistent organic pollutants. And I think that also there's kind of a reckoning coming that's asking this question, does the Clean Water Act still, you know, with its assumption, underlying assumption of, of utility to a river's use to to dumping things, is that even functional anymore? I think I think we have to ask that question. Yeah, and the numbers are terrifying. There's 80,000 industrial chemicals now in use in the United States. If we tested our bodies today, you know, you, me, Carrie, we would find <laughs> 700 of those chemicals in our, in our own bodies. Right. And the, the, system, the system just isn't functioning. I mean, it's just not working. It's rigged as well, going back to what right. Carrie said, which is that, you know, you know, the work of environmental lawyers is really about trying to override the regulators. Mm-hmm. Yet, and in addition to that, I used to work in the you know capital in in Pennsylvania in the state legislature, and I would watch as the big corporations, big business entities, would write bills and then hand them off to the to the committees, and the committees would pass them. And if we think that anything contained in those laws is going to help us at the community level, we're crazy because. If you were the ones writing the laws, why would you give any power to communities? Why would you recognize any kind of rights for nature in that framework? Yet our environmental work for the past 40 years has been like hamsters running around a wheel or the, you know, I still remember fairs. You know, Spokane has an active fair, other places do too, but the whack-a-mole game that you play, you know, <laughs> where you, 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 you take the hammer, you whack the mole, three others pop up. I mean, that's the story of environmental activism. And as anybody that plays chess or other, you know, games of strategy knows if you're always on the defensive, you're going to lose in the long term. And here the difference is when we lose, it's one thing, but when the natural world loses as well, you know, that's, that's a, uh, that's a different thing. So I think we got to get out of this, you know, regulatory permit appeal kind of hamster wheel approach and into something that's offense and moving on the offense. Yeah, you know, the other thing I would add to that is this uh, last four years for me has really shown us how that's how 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 frail and flawed the the current system is Mm -hmm. in the sense of, you you know, if if a hostile administration wants to bulldoze you with those environmental regulations or if for other reasons, environmental advocates are bulldozed. You know, right now we're seeing enormous amounts of, uh, you know, SEPA processes and things that are coming through from development. And there's just no way community advocates can can cope with the amount of, of work that's being shoveled on to try to protect fragile places. And so you see this degradation just continue to happen. Yeah. You know. It re- my also reminds me of a case I had really early on. It was uh, a wood chipper. Uh, that had that had to be permitted by the state in north central Pennsylvania, and we came in and the wood chipping operation, uh, and it was doing other things as well. But the wood chipping operation didn't have a permit to operate. We were like, ah, 
we, we got you. There's no permit here. You didn't apply for it. <laughs> and then the regulatory agency, the Department of Environmental Protection in Pennsylvania, which some people refer to as the Department of Everything Permitted, uh, that the DEP retroactively permitted the operation by fax. Sent a fax of a permit to retroactively permit the facility. And I was like, wow, that's it. That's it for me. I'm, I'm done. That combined with the fact that uh, we used to do these permit appeals in court and we would find that, you know, the job is to find gaps, emissions, and deficiencies in the permit that issues to then argue that to the to the judge that the agency made a mistake, shouldn't mm-hmm. have issued the permit in the first place. We had the lawyers, law firms for the biggest corporations in the United States, like Monsanto and Chemical Waste Management, come up to us afterwards thanking us for finding the gaps, emissions, and deficiencies because the law firm could then bill the company more to actually fill in the gaps, emissions, and deficiencies for the next round. Oh so, my so we actually had the law firms thanking us for for challenging the permits because then it created more business for them to, to move through the future permit appeal process and resubmit. And th- those were kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back for me, at least in practicing conventional environmental law. Um, that was it. When was that? That was way back in 1999. So a couple years before we started doing uh, this kind of work turning away from the permanent bill stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I'd just, uh, I'd, I'd put a fine point on that by saying what, what we're seeing now with the Clean Water Act as well is, is uh, as it's becoming more difficult to meet water quality standards for, for, for all of these chemicals that you, you spoke about, um, that we really don't understand, you know, the effect on, on aquatic ecosystems or the rivers at all or the oceans, um, you, what, what we're watching happen is agencies just creating more and more guidance, ad hoc guidance that allows for this continued dumping and this continued uh, assault on the environment. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm really worried that the Clean Water Act, uh, as landmark as it has been, is really being weakened in some ways. And that, that has me you know, asking that question profoundly, we, we do need to go after some new tools and, uh, you know, pretty excited about uh, what, what you have to say about rights in nature as, as that. Yeah, mm-hmm. we do a lot of work in Florida. The, the state of Florida was given delegated power to administer the Federal Clean Water Act. It's one of, I think, only two states that has that in the United States, but they've used that to weaken the clean water process even down to comment periods. I mean, it's like you don't even know that the permit's been, application's been submitted, yet the permit, the thing runs 30 days from the date that the permit is no. is submitted. And so most of the times you don't even know that something's been, that's gone in. But And also I remember the Virginia Department of Transportation uh, administering NEPA and environmental impact statement stuff a long time ago. They stopped doing public hearings altogether. You what what they do now is you walk into a room by yourself and you speak into a recorder and you raise whatever concerns or questions you have in the recorder. But they understand that people had started to use those communal gatherings as organizing points and they don't want you to hear what everybody else is saying. So legally, the minimum was met by you going in, talking into a funnel, literally into a recording device so that they could record your comments. But there was no longer any kind of public hearing being held. So even the the kind of 
just edges of democratic stuff mm-hmm. is disappearing. And it's tougher and tougher to see how that portal is going to afford us any kind of real environmental protection in the future. Yeah. We saw that in my work last year with the EIS um, and the Trump administration, which shortened our comment period from uh, 90 days, I think, to 60. And we had to move to webinars, partly because of the pandemic, obviously. But it's frustrating. Um, But at least Washington is not as bad as Florida. (laughs) Not yet. Well, in the Spokane River, we have something going on. You know, we've long had a polychlorinated biphenyl problem. And those are very difficult to, you know, to filter out of the of the wastewater. And 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 uh, we right now under the Clean Water Act are dumping more than the river. Uh, Not only is it unhealthy, but it's legally we're causing and contributing to water quality violations. We're not meeting the water quality violations. In 2015, the EPA came up with some guidance called variance guidance, uh, and the state of Washington now has uh, been trying to use a variance to address PCBs, which again continues to reflect the underlying assumption that it's really continues to be okay, and in fact, sh- the river should be used to dump chemicals into uh, and and transport away. That that's it's a dead thing. We do need to protect the, you know, uh, under the law, in air quotes, uh, you know, protect the uses of fishing, swimming. uh, But really, um, it's a very cynical act. And and for me, Thomas, that's, you know, I'm wondering at some point if that's my my wood chipper moment. You know, it's sort of like, wow, we've, we've really come to the end of the ability of the Clean Water Act to actually effectively address uh these 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 issues um for for sure yeah when you said the words wood chipper moment i, I thought of the movie fargo <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah you only have to see that once yeah. yeah it's uh it's all about what we're going to do with our time we sometimes you know talk about well this agency's doing that and this agency's doing that and the three of us are involved on a day-to-day basis with this mm-hmm. stuff but think about the the normal average person yeah. who cares about something but has a full-time job and kids and soccer games and all that kind of stuff. You know, talking about variants, you know, governing by variants and 404 and 401 permits and the Clean Water Act and Environmental Impact Statement, it's all Greek. And it's intended to be Greek. Mm-hmm. It's like back in the 1500s when reading the Bible was illegal, that you had to refer on, you know, you had to defer to the to the priests to tell you what the Bible meant. Mm-hmm. And we kind of have a, uh, an endless alphabet of acronyms, you know, agencies, and we speak in shorthand <laughs> and lingo. And it's like for the average person, it's, it's almost like, how do you even track this stuff? And it's, in, it's on purpose. It's complicated on purpose. And in the end, you know, the folks in the know, the folks who have been doing this work, we reach the dead ends and we know where the dead ends are. But all of it's camouflaged. And democracy is really camouflaged too. People People, when you know, I did a college tour uh, last year and, and somebody said, well, that's not really true that the environmental laws aren't working. Uh, rivers don't catch on fire anymore. And I said... That's such a low bar. <laughs> well, that, if that's our metric, <laughs> we've got some real problems at this oh. point. But a lot of people, you talk to them, they just assume. We have environmental agencies. Going back to what Carrie said, we have, we have people we pay. We, we pay our elected officials. We pay our regulators. And they're supposed to be doing X. But they don't. 
mm-hmm. because the, it's all just kind of, you know, show. It's for show. And it's not real. And until we make it real, it's not going to, nothing's going to change. That's where we're at. Yeah. I want to um, pivot really quick uh, because I know that for a lot of our listeners are probably listeners in Spokane or connected to, you know, the Pacific Northwest. And I was wondering, uh, Thomas and, and even Jerry, I know you could probably speak to this as well about um, how this rights of nature movement came to be in in Spokane and um, how it's tied to this to this community. Yeah, so the the reason I moved to Spokane in 2008 was to help with an effort called Envision Spokane. And Envision Spokane was, uh, uh, you know, it's ancient history at this point, but Envision Spokane brought together labor leaders, neighborhood activists, and environmental folks from, from the city, folks that generally hadn't sat together across the table for the last, you know, 40 years, uh, to talk about what, what a new vision for Spokane would be. And in 2011, uh, the initiative uh, was on the ballot uh, here in the city, and that initiative uh, would have recognized the Spokane River and the aquifer as having certain rights, right to sustainable recharge, right to flow, right to exist, you know, basic kind of, of rights uh, in addition to, you know, flow sufficient to support uh, native fish habitat, uh, very specific stuff. And the, the labor unions voted to support it. And the neighborhood activists voted to support it. So all the planks, and there were four of them that appeared on the ballot that year for the Envision Spokane Initiative, were all unanimously supported by these labor leaders, environmental leaders, neighborhood activists that came together. And I think that showed because it, it only failed by 1,000 votes. It came within a, a, a percentage and a half of passing uh, within the city of Spokane. So very, very, very close. Uh, in the city, but that would have recognized the Spokane River as having legally enforceable rights that people within Spokane could could enforce, step into the shoes of the river to actually enforce those rights. So it was very exciting. And then knowing that it came that close to passing, the next time it came back on the ballot, which was 2013, the Chamber of Commerce here sued, other corporations, business entities here sued, Avista was involved, and uh, successfully kept it off the ballot. So there was no vote. Uh, in 2013. And I think that work is kind of, you know, the great unfinished work, mm-hmm. uh, which is, it, it was a snapshot or a Polaroid. I have no doubt that if it was just the Spokane initiative that appeared on the ballot and not in addition to that, the, you know, there were neighborhood rights over vetoing Walmart coming in or big box stores. And there was a labor provision and a corporation, you know, corporations shouldn't have more rights than people in the city. So all told, those four initiatives were part of that one ballot initiative, came close to passing. I have no doubt if it was just the Spokane River on the ballot, it would have passed uh, in the city. And so I think that's kind of the great unfinished work here, and especially with the Nez Perce tribe uh, just uh, six months ago passing uh, a, a tribal law recognizing the Snake River as having rights. So I think it's slowly coming, yeah, but that's kind of the unfinished work, I think. Well, it does seem a natural fit as we look to the horizon of the uh, of the of the you know the environmental movement, um, <clears throat> and I think we are in that moment where we have to start asking ourselves, you know, h- how are we going to level up and and really achieve the goals of the Clean Water Act, even though the Clean Water Act is an English law you know based system, but how do we achieve those goals, which is to end pollution? 
I mean, in, you know, the, the Clean Water Act envisioned no more pollution in the 1980s. We, we are, as you noted, Thomas, so, we're not only not getting there, you know, with the emerging chemicals of concern, we're, we're behind. So um, that coupled with, I think, a growing consciousness across the earth uh, to to revisit those indigenous values that the landscapes are are uh, are alive. There's you know and and do have value in and of themselves beyond their utility to people. I'm I'm excited to begin exploring this in our Spokane area for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's becoming much more mainstream to do this work, like I mentioned earlier. So Tulane Law School, Vermont Law School, University of Florida, a law, a law school have held symposia. Uh, Gonzaga recently held a, an event on rights of nature. I'm debating uh, the uh, leader of the human exceptionalism uh, movement in October at Gonzaga, uh, who has been writing on rights of nature for 10 years against it, saying that rights of nature is a danger to human exceptionalism, whatever that means. What? Yeah. And so, you know, so it's slowly gaining momentum. The Florida Democratic Party added rights of nature to their platform, their party platform last year. Uh, And uh, so, you know, as we move forward, it becomes more and more kind of, I won't say the word entrenched, but more acceptable uh, to be talking in these terms, I think. Well, certainly you had, had used the word boomeranged, you know, that this idea is boomeranging around uh, really the globe. And uh, so it does seem to be, even as we're watching this environmental, in some areas, collapse um, and certainly uh, crisis, it does seem to be an exciting time to be thinking about rights of nature as a as a platform to, to begin to implement and I would, I would also add that the river keepers have been at the forefront of the rights of nature work in Florida. So John Cassani, Calusachi uh, river keeper, I was on a, a radio show with him a couple of weeks ago, very supportive of rights of nature work. Uh, and the river keepers collectively have come together to support the ability of localities, cities, towns, villages, and counties in Florida to pass rights of nature laws. So river and I keynoted the the Riverkeeper Waterkeeper uh, conference in Seattle a number of years ago. A lot of excitement among those that constituency, and a lot of support uh, in Florida, which is pretty much at the forefront of the rights of nature movement right now. The work that's happening there. Mm-hmm. Kind of going back to um, what's really different about now, too, though, in this moment in time and like this discussion and, and what it can mean forward I really feel uh, that our um, society is is putting a lot more value on on um, racial and social justice issues and listening to communities of color in ways that they were not good at doing before and still are not very great at um, but I think that that conversation of uh, environmental justice is racial justice is social justice is really allowing for um, indigenous voices to be heard at the forefront of these issues and to push collective consciousness consciousness towards accepting something like this. And I think that there's a lot about right now that makes this conversation for Spokane really hopeful and exciting. And if we were to, you know, move in this direction, what could it mean for our community? Very exciting. And I would also say the tribes in the U.S. are really leading the way. So, oh, yeah, as er, with everything in the environmental world. Absolutely. And, um, 
you know, lawyers talk about rights of nature starting in the 1970s, which is kind of crazy. It's like, you know, the England or the Dutch discovering new worlds when they were colonizing because tribal nations have always understood nature as being something different. And uh, whether it's the White Earth, Ojibwe, Anishinaabe people in Minnesota, whether it's the Yurok tribe in Northern California, the Ponca in Oklahoma, the Menominee in Wisconsin, uh, these tribes have, have inserted and begun to insert rights of nature provisions into their tribal, not only constitutional provisions, but also just general tribal law. And so they're really taking the lead on that. And in fact, my privilege to sit on a national council that was formed a number of months ago with tribal leaders and environmental leaders. Uh, Karana Gore sits on the council as well. But the, to engage the Biden administration and the Department of the Interior and Bureau of Indian Affairs with ways to integrate rights of nature laws into federal uh, federal regulations like the 404 clean water regulations. What if a tribe has passed a rights of nature law and uh, the uh, EPA has been asked to issue a 404 wetlands fill permit for a project that is protected by the tribe's rights of nature law? Shouldn't that require the federal government to deny the 404 permit on the basis of that rights of nature law? So it gets in the weeds a little bit, but integrating rights of nature concepts into federal federal law, federal regulatory law and statutory law. Mm-hmm. Right, absolutely, and we would see that you know intersection with uh, <clears throat> you know federally derived water quality standards uh, and other you know pieces of federal law. I would guess if, if were we to and and hopefully when we move forward here uh, with with the rights of nature uh, work, because you know really it's all of those little piece those those like you say in the weeds those little pieces, but 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 very important pieces of federal. Uh, guidance and or law that uh, ultimately um, really have a huge impact on on what our world looks like. Mm-hmm. I, you know, sa- salmon recovery, same same way, re- really, with the biological opinions and ESA and all the other um, pieces. Yeah, and the and the White Earth Nation has even talked about recognizing rights for salmon. So that's a whole nother, you know, piece of that as we move forward. There's communities in Colorado that are working on creating legally enforceable rights for pollinators because pollinator populations have declined uh, precipitously. And so what would it recognize, what, what does it look like to recognize legal rights for pollinator species and then protect pollinators against those projects that might affect those rights? You know, it's a fascinating situation here in the Spokane River because while the Upper Columbia United Tribes are are moving to recover Chinook salmon in the Upper Basin, and and of course there's vast efforts in the Lower Basin as well, um, but one of the things that's a fascinating situation for me up here is we have this red band trout, mm-hmm. Columbia Basin Interior red band trout, and they're down to only 300 fish per mile in the Middle River, and 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 for perspective. In the upper St. Joe, you know, we have 1,200 to 2,000 fish per mile. So they really are a population in crisis, but it's fascinating when you study this population to see how sort of between the cracks they fall from a management standpoint because they don't have any regulatory value, and again in air quotes, um, and they have no rights to exist. So other than some DF, uh, Washington Department of Wildlife regulations that say you have to release them when you catch them, they really do not get any special protections from the hydroelectric system that's run by 
you know, uh, private uh, operators and we don't have, nor the pollution. And I feel like this rights of nature, were we to really look at how to implement uh, that, whether it's through the fish or the river or the aquifer or some combination of the three, could really provide a valuable way to address this beautiful population of fish that frankly is, is, you know, is not doing well. Absolutely. I think the sky's the limit and uh, we need to think outside the box and start doing the kind of stuff that we've been told that we can't do (laughs) over the past 40 years. And it's, it's us. It's not going to happen without us unless we, we do it. There's no regulator, regulator. There's no agency official, I mean, removing the dams, not to insert a fairly contentious issue here, but removing <laughs> the dams as a, is a no-brainer, right. I mean, to us. It's like, but it doesn't happen because there's no leverage. There's no, you know, there's no club. that We need to build the club. It's almost like you got to build the car and then drive the car. And the what's happening in Florida right now is they built the car. You know, in Orange County, Florida, 1.5 million people, largest population area municipality ever to pass a rights of nature law they decided that the water quality issues in florida had reached a crisis point between the death of the manatees and the red tide and the algae blooms and the death of biscayne bay which happened last year it went to zero dissolved oxygen levels in the water they, they they came to a point where they were putting fire boats out on lake on biscayne bay to circulate the water to try to get oxygen back into the water. I mean, how crazy does it have to get mm. before you just say enough? This this is it. So they they understood that there was no pre-existing car. You 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 can't, you know, the regulatory car is not something that you can get in and drive and go anywhere with. You have to build a new vehicle and then you have to drive that vehicle. And so they put this law on the ballot uh, to protect the Wakaiva and Econ Lakachi rivers as recognizing them as having rights to exist, be free from pollution, maintain a healthy ecosystem and flow, passed by 89% of the vote, almost 90% of the vote in this county, which meant a bunch of Trump voters voted for the Right to Clean Water initiative in, in that county. Which So there was crossover between left and right, what we would typically regard as left and right, and it passed. And now a lawsuit's been filed to, to stop a housing development that's proposing to build on 1,900 acres. It's going to result in a, a, over 100 acres of wetlands being destroyed and waterways being built on and stormwater basin ponds being created from wetlands. And they're suing to, to say that you can't do that. You can't destroy the wetlands and the waterways because of the Orange County law, which says that the wetlands have a right to exist. So the developer is applying to the EPA for a dredge and fill permit to fill the wetlands to destroy them, to kill them, to kill the wetlands. Yet you have this county law that says you can't because the wetlands have a right to exist. That's, that's, that's what has to happen in more places, a vehicle built and then drive it, which is to mm-hmm. use the existing institutions to enforce those laws. That's what needs to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, no, no argument here, no question here, and and I'm, you know, one of the things I find fascinating about that is that broad spectrum of support, and and it is interesting that once you when you go approach, uh, a, you know, a population of folks that lives on a river or a bay or a beach or a creek or a lake, they, you know, regardless of politics fall in love with, with that, uh, you know, living system. 
and we'll support. And if you pose the question, "Do you want this to be killed or go away?" they'll 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 absolutely defend it. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it gets back to this mystification of of clean water law in some regards. If if you get in and you begin to pose the question in different ways around how the regulation should work, then then those things get politicized. But I, I do th- think that Rights of Nature has a long ways or has a, a huge capacity to simply address these basic questions that really transcend, frankly, uh, political uh, ideologies and, and really ask the fundamental question, you know, sh- should this lake or this river or this wetland that is so essential for, as a living system exist? And I... I think that's another really interesting question of breaking through some of the log jams we have now ideologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the question that we've always been trained to ask as we work within the environmental regulatory field is what can we get within the existing system? What can we get within that system? And then we try to navigate it to see what the best we can get is. But we, we've forgotten how to ask the question of what do we need? What do we want? What do we need? How do we how do we shear ourselves away from that regulatory platform and, and begin asking, what do we want? What do we need? Mm-hmm. As and, active participants in our own ecosystem. Absolutely. Yeah. As part of the ecosystem, because humans are part of the ecosystem yes. as much <laughs> as we like to think that we're not. Uh, and I think it's that, it's that shift from asking, what can we get within the existing system to stepping outside of it and saying, what do we need and what do we want? That's really the, the difference between the reformers and the rebels. You know, the folks that work completely outside versus the folks that are trying to make the system work. Uh, and I think, you know, as much as I hate it to learn that a lot of big environmental groups, you know, the big green groups in the U.S., and I've represented some of them. I've, I've litigated on behalf of the Sierra Club, for example, So, and I still have colleagues in a lot of those groups, that there are vested interests even in those big environmental organizations that still treat rights of nature as a, as a flaming radical you know, don't touch it, it's radioactive kind of thing. So whether it's, you know, Defenders of Wildlife or Sierra Club or NRDC, especially NRDC, uh, that these big organizations, they take a long time to turn. They're like big ocean liners that, that turn very slowly. And, and I think that their leadership is needed. It's been completely absent over these past many years because it's the rights of nature work is treated as so, so crazy and so fringe. But I think hopefully that's starting to change too, because we need those folks. We need those groups. We need people in those different places working on this stuff. And up till now it's been kind of a small band of rebels in different places who have been pushing, pushing these initiatives forward, but that needs, that needs to change at some point. So funny to me to think of Floridians as rebels. (laughs) The status quo. <laughs> they, yeah, they disagree about everything else except for clean water. I love it. <laughs> well, and that's you know that goes back to Carrie what you were saying about us being a part of of the ecosystem and those folks down there that that fish every day and mm-hmm. and and and, you, and are out in the in the bays and on the water um really see themselves as part of that and are willing to willing willing to get a part of uh, protecting it. You know, uh, without making any bold statements or pronouncements or speaking for organizations, I, I will say it is exciting to listen to the Waterkeeper Alliance uh, and various waterkeepers r- really starting, I think, to, to get more engaged in the conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see where, where that goes. Yeah. 
I'm excited for it, for that conversation to happen more places around the U.S. Yeah, 20 years ago, I did a tour with, uh, 15 years ago, I did a tour of the South African lawyer working on rights of nature stuff, and we had environmental law professors get up in the middle and walk out uh, because careers have been made around 404, section 24, B, 1, 3. You know, you have, you have environmental lawyers have made careers out of one small subsection of one small statutory paragraph, and they've become experts in it, and for good reason. You, you need that kind of thing. But the rights of nature, early on, some people, I think, saw as a threat to existing regulatory stuff. And so we had environmental law professors walking out of talks in Ecuador, Midnight before the Ecuadorian constitutional provisions were supposed to pass, I got summoned to a classroom with the major environmental organizations in Ecuador who were trying to convince us to drop the constitutional provision from being considered in the Ecuadorian Constitution on Rights of Nature. And it just it kind of opened my eyes to these, you know, the, the current role that major environmental organizations really serve, which is kind of to mitigate but and to shave off some of the rough edges of projects, but not necessarily to be the change makers that we need to, to lead the way. You know, I, I think if I can um, add uh, to that, you know, having been in the seat of um, working on a, on a particular issue, for example, on the Spokane River, and really investing in a tactic, right, or a, or, a, you know, a particular way to get to shut something down, to shut an egregious, you know, assault on the environment down, it, it is tough because you get invested in these conventional tactics in a way that begins to, you, you can easily begin to see any other uh, way of addressing this as hostile or, 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 or foolhardy or whatever, you know, but um, you, it can be threatening. And and I do think we need to, I think we're at the right time to begin to lay a lot of that aside right now because, because of the things that we've all talked about here today, which are the conventional tools just are just not working at this point. I think we're at the a perfect storm right yep. now, which yep. is, uh, you know, people who are moving this more into the mainstream but willing to risk their careers and reputations to do something different. And I think the turning one of the turning points for me was Oliver Hauck, Professor Oliver Hauck from Tulane Law School, not a household name, but somebody who helped write the Clean Water Act back in the 70s. He's a senior elder environmental lawyer in the United States and very well respected. Most of the environmental law professors in the U.S. were his students. And he wrote a law review article uh, supporting the rights of nature a couple years ago. And that was a, a shift in the way other environmental law professors really began to treat the rights of nature as a concept. And so I think in small pockets that's starting to happen. And I think it's a really good, it's, it's a good sign, but it, it also begs, you know, the kind of um, I'm in as much a hurry as anybody else, but to say what took so long, you know, why is it taking so long to get back to an indigenous knowledge system when obviously that, that is the only way that we're going to be able to comprehensively protect the natural environment and the places that we love. Why is it taking so long? Why, why are people so adamantly opposed to, to shifting out of uh, dealing with the regulatory framework to doing something else? And so I think we need to push as well as recognize that it takes, it takes a while. Change of this sort takes a long time. It took the abolitionists and the suffragists, you know, a hundred years of peace to get us to a point where 
the constitutional structure in the U.S. was being changed to recognize women as having the right to vote, recognizing African Americans as, as not being property under the law. Um, movements take a long time. And this one that we're talking about is more paradigm shifting than some of the civil rights movements that have come in the past because it affects everything we do, how we live, how we work, you know, how we treat uh, nature, how we use water. I mean, it's everything. And so that, that heavy of a transformation takes a long time to happen. And so we have to have patience, but at the same time, we actually have to kick people in the behinds to get them to, to move, I think. Um, I guess my question then, uh, following up with that sentiment, would be what can people do to be a part of this movement, to start kicking people's behinds? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think first is, is paying more attention to what's happening uh, about these new environmental models that are emerging. Uh, just had a case uh, two weeks ago in Ecuador where a judge held in favor of another ecosystem. The Ecuadorian Constitutional Court is now hearing six new cases, and we think going to establish really bright-line tests that are going to influence other places around the world about what it looks like to apply rights of nature to mining activities or to protected biological areas in the country. So real, real work implementing. Uh, resources are always needed. So f groups and folks internationally as well as the U.S. working on rights of nature, there, there's, a, there's a funding issue. A lot of the funding goes mm -hmm. to existing conventional environmental groups, but you know, groups working on rights of nature stuff need funding and resources as well. But I think the, the biggest thing that needs to be done is, is for folks working in their own communities, their own cities, towns, villages, counties. Here in Washington State, we're in better shape than a lot of other states that don't have citizen ballot initiative processes. So if people in Spokane want to come together and put something on the ballot citywide, you can. It only mm -hmm. takes 3,200 signatures or 3,500 signatures to actually change the way that the city operates and to, and to create rights in this respect. A lot of states don't have access to the ballot that way. So, you know, what I, what I always encourage is that these pockets of folks in different cities, towns, villages, and counties need to get moving, that the folks that are already doing environmental protection add this to the list uh, and begin investing in moving, moving law forward because the rights of nature under the Western system of law, they don't exist until you pass a law that recognizes that they exist. Mm -hmm. And I've been to untold conferences where people stand up and talk about how much they love nature, which is great. I love nature too. And I grew up in nature and, uh, and that's, that's part of me as well. But I got so tired of listening to people stand up at conferences talking about how much they love nature. And yet we're not taking steps to actually do what we need to mm -hmm. love nature, which is to create this new framework of law. So no matter where you are in Washington state, you can use these ballot initiatives in 30, 35 other states in the U.S. You can move them in Georgia where there's a, a, a river keeper active in Georgia. Uh, I talked with uh, him, John Quartermain, about moving uh, for the Suwannee River, moving forward protections for the Suwannee River. It can happen anywhere. It's just a matter of us deciding that we're going to make it happen. That's the, that's the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's get out there and do it. I remember, uh, I remember uh, years and years and years ago, eight, nine, think 1980s, uh, Barry Lopez, the author, came uh, as a visiting author, and, and he would not use the word resources to depict nature. <laughs> I love <laughs> <Anyway>. that. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, yeah. Um, Thomas, thank you very much for for joining us today and lending your voice to this very important issue. We do like to ask 
um, all of our guest speakers uh, one question before they end their time with us. And that is, if you could say one thing to the Spokane River, what would it be? We're coming. (laughs) (laughs) We're coming to help. We're on our way. (laughs) I love it. I love it. You know, I I spend a lot of time. I live near a Jerry in West Central, and we every day we see the river. Every time we spend we spend time Mm -hmm. with her, whether it's riding a bike past her or spending time down at T.J. Maynock Bridge and that area. It's it's all it's all about the river. And in fact, Spokane itself is all about the river, yeah. the founding of the city, the reason why it's here, the reason why people come here. Do we think people are moving to Kendall Yards and other developments for anything other than the river being there? I'm, I'm not so sure. It's, it's the lifeblood of this area, not just culturally and from an indigenous standpoint, but just from a quality of life, aesthetic, pick your, pick your reason uh, for, the, for the value of the river. But I think it is the, it's the reason for the city. And... Because of that, it needs to be protected to the highest highest level possible, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, Thomas, thank you again for being with us. Uh, we look forward to watching your work across, frankly, the globe and uh, and, uh, and and potentially working together at some point soon. And, 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 I, and I love it. Yes, we are. We're, <laughs> we're coming. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I do, before we kind of sign off, have a question for you, Jerry, oh, yeah. um, about if you have any general uh, Spokane Riverkeeper updates that our listeners might want to know about or uh, take into consideration moving on with their week and their month until our next amazing episode. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you, Carrie. Uh, listen, we have the Wild and Scenic Film Festival. It's the seventh annual Wild and Scenic Film Festival. It will be virtual on June 30th. You can go to SpokaneRiverKeeper.org and get uh, tickets. You can find an event on Facebook as well. Uh, we'd love to have you there for that festival. It's great. Also, look for the City of Spokane Sustainability Action Plan is out there in draft form. You can go to the city website and find that. Uh, It needs support. Uh, And I would ask everyone to be aware and ready to look into uh, drought response plans and water conservation plans for the city. Uh, The council will be deliberating on those. The date has not come out yet, but... That will be a very, very important issue to address uh, to ensure that our river even has enough water, uh, especially in a year like this year where we're, we, we don't know where the flows will go. So there's a couple of things um, that folks can be aware of for sure. Awesome. And then, uh, Thomas, sorry, I already thanked you, but um, uh, if you could give us the date for your rights of nature debate, that would be an amazing thing. I think people would be interested in. I believe it's October 9th. Okay. The Gonzaga Center for Climate uh, has, and Brian Henning has it up on their website uh, for that. And I'll be doing several debates with this particular gentleman, Wesley Smith, but uh, information can be found up there. Okay. That's great. And we'll, we'll post that information as we get a little closer to on the uh, Spokane River uh, social media and website as well. We're really looking forward to supporting that um, discussion. Yeah, and thanks for having me today. This has been great. Yeah, thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you to our listeners. You bet. <laughs> thanks, everyone, for being keepers out there. We'll see you all out on the river. Yep.
thank you today for listening to the podcast. We certainly had fun, and we want to make sure that you like, subscribe, and share at will. If you want more information, you can go to our website at thespokaneriverkeeper.org and find out more about the great work we're doing in the community to protect our river. Sign up for our email list for sure. We hope listening to this today inspired you to go out, fall in love with, and find the voice of your local river. Yeah, like Jerry said, thank you for listening. And we want to give a big shout out to our supporters, our local Spokane community, and of course, our Spokane River. Thanks, guys.